We've been looking through the law now for several weeks, and we come to the ninth commandment. To set up our sermon, I just want to remind you what Adam has, uh, for weeks now, put into our mind the use of the law, and that we don't think it of it, one, as a ladder, as if there's ten rungs on this ladder, and each commandment, as soon as I can finally accomplish it on my own, I'm one step closer to pleasing God. And now I'm up the next rung, and now I'm up the next rung, as if the law is a way that on our own we can reach our justification, we can reach a right relationship with God. But instead, that we use the law as that mirror, that when we look at it, it exposes our sin and our wickedness. We looked a couple weeks ago at a definition of worldliness, and I want to use that again this week. As we look at the law, it would serve as that mirror. We could look in the law, and it would expose to us where indeed we have been seduced by the world. Where that subtle seduction, that subtle way of the culture around us, before we know it, has sucked us in. We don't even know it, and yet subtly we've bought into a system that stands contrary to God and his word. Listen to this definition of worldliness, the same one we went through a couple weeks ago. Worldliness is a laziness and sleepiness of the soul in which the status, pleasures, comforts, attractions, and cares of this world appear solid, stunning, and satisfying, and affecting while the truths of Scripture become abstractions, unable to grip the heart or guide our everyday activities. In America, the greatest challenge facing most Christians is not persecution, but seduction. When this world's pattern of life starts to seem normal, and God's way starts to seem strange, we know we have been seduced. When this happens, Christians become miserably ineffective, and making God seem all-satisfying. He continues a little later, when the law of God seems totally archaic, nothing more than an afterthought, and the message of this world today seems real and relevant and makes more sense, you have been seduced. When the law seems like little more than an obstacle to your real satisfaction, you have been seduced. For me, the law has worked that way in my heart and life as Adam has preached through as we've gone through it as a church body. To open my heart, my own eyes to that subtle seduction where the law becomes more than how do I skirt it in order to get to what I really want. Instead of it exposing the heart and driving you to the gospel, to rejoice in Jesus Christ to rest in his righteousness, to rest in his death and his satisfaction of God's wrath, and then to move us back to the law, to how do I walk before my king as a righteous child? Not the law as an obstacle to my happiness, but Jesus Christ purchasing my eternal joy and now giving me a way to walk before my king. And the world runs contrary, runs contrary to the law that is provided for our joy, for our happiness, for our satisfaction. And in today's culture, the ninth commandment is no exception to this rule. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. The idea of honesty, the idea of truth. Today, 
telling the truth is really quite optional. In today's culture, to even think of the idea to be bound to truth is a bit archaic. To think that there's a universal standard of truth that exists outside of me, and that is the standard of which I am to adhere to, that that is truth, that is considered nowadays really outdated and naive. To think that there's some sort of standard of truth like that. Truth is under attack, not in some distant country, but right here in the east end of Pittsburgh, right in our neighborhood. Listen to a postmodern philosopher, Richard Rorty. He distilled kind of the postmodern concept, and it comes down to this essence. This is the culture we find ourselves in. The summarizing statement is this. Truth is made. It is not found. Truth is made. It is not found. That is to say that we, each individual is kind of up to them to create, to invent what their truth is. In other words, there's no difference between a truth and a lie. It really just depends on what is your reality what works best in your culture, what is your preference, and the standard for truth becomes very internal and individual. So that there's no real outward standard of truth. And that gets, has a great effect that we see in our world. That now, any sort of call to honesty and truth is just, you know, What's the big deal? I read this recent article I was directed there. It's in Child Magazine. I don't know if you've heard of that magazine or not. I don't get a subscription, but I read it just for this, uh, for this sermon. Recently, there's an article entitled, The Truth About Lying. And the whole idea is it's instructing parents just to kind of like calm down and not get, don't overreact when your kids start lying. You know, as early as, to, well, you know, as soon as they're old enough to, you know, talk or whatever, they start deceiving and lying. And they're saying, you know, don't get carried away with that. The caption underneath the title reads, Here's the old view. Lying, like other issues of morality, was seen only in black and white. Children were taught, children were taught that all lying was bad and deserving of punishment. They were frequently reminded that lying will make your nose grow long like Pinocchio's. However, the new view, today we have learned that lying is considered normal. In fact, a child's first few lies are seen as an important step in the development of the self. Later in the article, quoting a PhD, kind of a leading researcher in this area, she talks about lying as a developmental milestone, much like learning to get dressed by yourself or to take turns. While it needs to be controlled, it should be exercised and developed, just as other areas of reasoning, communication, and social development. It's not that the world, the culture, holds firm to a reality of truth that exists outside of me, and we are bound to that truth. Culturally, that's not how the environment that we live in operates. And it's easy to be subtly seduced by that. That truth becomes somewhat flexible in the way you understand it, in the way you explain. Unfortunately, that's cropped in even into the church, very much into the church community. When I was a senior in high school, I went to this um, leadership 
conference type of deal. And so they took a few seniors from different schools. We came to this conference. There's a pretty well-known speaker, and he's talking to the group. <clears throat> and he starts with this illustration. When I was a teenager, I was angry. I used to just have outbursts of anger. It was a real problem in my life. My parents prayed continually that I would get, you know, victory over this anger. Then there was this one fall day. This is him talking. There was this one fall day. I remember it specifically because it was the first sunny day we'd had in several days. I had been out late. I was at a friend's house. I'm coming home in the morning. I'm driving down the road, and here's a pile of leaves someone had raked up right on the curve of the road. And that anger boiled up in me, and I thought, I'm just going to run through that pile of leaves and watch them go everywhere. Started to go towards it. The last minute, I steered away, and up popped two little heads. There's two kids playing in this pile of leaves. And he went on to say how that moment changed his life drastically. Of course, everyone's on the edge of their seat loving that story. About eight months later, I'm a freshman in college. I'm sitting with a group of guys in this little chapel area. Some young speaker, it's probably like one of his first times getting a chance to speak, stands up and he's making the point. So he starts his little testimony illustration this way. When I was a teenager, I had a problem with anger. I just had this rage inside of me. And my parents, you know, they always prayed that I would get victory over it. And one fall day, I remember it clearly because it was the first day in a long time without rain. I'm driving home, and he goes on to tell this story. And at the end, this story, what changed his life, turned him around, set him free. I'm sitting there telling my friends, laughing. I'm like, I know this story. I know this story. And he was personalizing it. Oh, first person. This happened to me, and it changed my life. Down to the detail of the first day. It hadn't been raining in a long time. You know, he just got real flexible with the truth there. You know, he's probably in a leadership conference two years before me, heard the same speaker use that illustration, thought, I'm tucking that one away. And now I'm telling it in first person of the life-changing moment for me. And, of course, it's the same thing. It's a great story, right? The two heads pop up. I don't have a story that good, so I'm going to use his as mine. It creeps in the church, and pretty soon, you know, well, people understand. It's just, I can be flexible with the truth. This helps get my point across. And so, I guess if I'm going to tell a story on him, I should tell a story on me. When I was 15, I was in this preaching competition. That's a really bad idea to have, like, 15-year-olds in a preaching competition, by the way. You know, I don't, I have no idea what's going on. I think I told this story to my community life group back in the day. Um, you know, so here I'm like 15, I'm your typical 15-year-old. I got like the braces with the black and green rubber bands on them to match my baseball uniform. You know, I'm like, I'm ready to roll. So it's like two days before this competition, and I decide I better start like preparing to preach in this competition. So, you know, it's like one of those things I'm opening my Bible, falls on like, Daniel, that's perfect. That's my name. I'll preach from the book of Daniel. <laughs> so I prepare this message, you know, <laughs> I can't remember all the points of it, but, you know, it was, I'm sure it was absolutely terrible. Um, but one of the last, you know, I had got one commentary from my dad. So I'm looking, so every fact on Daniel, I'm just jotting it down. So I learned in studying the day before my message that the name Daniel in Hebrew, Hebrew means God is my judge. All right. So the next day, you know, I'm super nervous. There's like four judges and like six other guys who are in this competition, and I'm preaching to them. I got like 12 minutes to preach my message. Now I'm coming towards the end, and I hit Daniel. Did you know that the name Daniel means God is my judge? 
my name is Daniel. I get beside the Pope and I go, not a day goes by that that doesn't grip my soul. <laughs> and I am just pouring out my heart how God is my judge. That has gripped my soul for years and changed my life. And I've known about it for like 24 hours. <laughs> You know, and that's like the whole pivotal point. And I even won the competition. So, you know, there we go. (laughs) And so you learn pretty quickly, like, truth becomes flexible. And okay, I won't blatantly write outright lie, but I can sort of, you know, in the community, it just, to make things easier, you know, I can play with the truth a little bit. God detests that. There's a standard that calls for honesty. We talked a couple weeks ago, too, about living as salt and light. What does it mean to live as salt and light? Two things. There must be substance. There must be something about you that's different. There must be some saltiness, some savoriness to you that is different than that around you. And there must be light. You can't be just like the darkness. So there must be substance. There must be something that's different about you. And then it's got to come into contact with darkness. It's got to co- come into contact with, with that which needs that flavor and that savor that's so beautiful that has happened in your soul as Christ has changed you. And how tangibly are we salt and light to those around us? And we said it's not just a simple legalistic list of here's 12 things I do and here's 12 things I don't do and now I'm salt and light. It's how has Jesus transformed my life and so that really as the commandments boil down to love God with my heart and my soul and to love my neighbor. How do I show that to one another? How do we interact with one another? How we love one another is one of the brightest lights and most salty salts that we can be to those around us. And to be a truthful community in the midst of a culture steeped in deception, in dishonesty, in just marginalizing that there's even really any sort of concept of truth, to be a truthful, trusting community, that is salt and light to the world around us. I want to look at four passages, we'll go through it here fairly quickly, that develop this idea of honesty, of truth. First one is right there in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, 16. You shall, not, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In the very narrowest sense right here, it has the idea of being in the courtroom. That you are an honest witness in a courtroom. You think back in that day, in, in the trials, if you come and someone's accused of something and so they're hoard, holding court on something. You know, they didn't have the, the CSI to come in and get the DNA samples and pull the phone records and go online, all that. And you think of the punishments connected in the Old Testament. You know, like the death penalty was for almost everything. And so you come and they're saying, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Like, you really hold justice or injustice being served by your testimony. You need to work for the good of the community, for the good of that person, and an honest, true testimony is working for their good. 
a false testimony is working for their destruction. And so within the courtroom, and you see, and that grows through Exodus. There, it talks about, in Exodus 23, um, I think it is, where Moses talks that even taking a bribe in order to testify falsely against somebody, that if you get caught doing that, you'll receive the punishment against that was due the one you testified against. So anyways, you know, you testify falsely and you could die for it in the Old Testament. But as it boils down, the idea is being honest for the good of your neighbor. Being truthful for the good of the community instead of testifying falsely for your own advancement. Being dishonest for your own gain. That's really where the, weight, the central weight of the command lies is being honest for the good of the community. I mean, you think about, even in our secular world we live in now, within the courtroom, honesty, I mean, it almost seems like a joke. I was thinking of the O.J. Simpson trial. That's a really outdated example by now. You know, it was 1994, almost 20 years ago, that that happened. I don't know, some of you probably don't even... O.J. Simpson used to play football. Anyways, if you remember that trial... That thing just became like a circus, wasn't it? Just kind of a joke by the end. I don't think anyone, whatever you think about the trial, no one was thinking, wow, justice is served. This, they really got to the bottom of the truth. It just became this joke. Culture continues to grow and deepen that way. That truth is just something to be played with. And it's flexible for however serves you best. And the commandment is, be honest for the good of your neighbor. Matthew chapter 5, that'll be the second passage we look. And we'll see kind of as we go through the text how this idea grows and develops for us. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes through a lot of the, of the Ten Commandments and explains to the people here is the spirit of the law. He tells you, you're not out. The, the law isn't demolished. It's not done away with. Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the law. And he tells them, here's how the law operates in your life. Let's read verses 33 through 37. It kind of deals specifically with this command. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or literally comes from the evil one, comes from Satan. So what Jesus is doing here, it's, I understand he's extending this idea of being truthful. He's attacking the Pharisees. He's attacking what is their way of operation in that they take the law and they kind of rip it out and they manipulate it to serve their purpose and to make them look good and to beat other people over the head with. And that's kind of how they use the law. That's how they operate with it. 
So this idea of do not bear false witness against your neighbor, the, the idea of honesty for the sake of another one's good, what they started doing is two different things. One, they started, they call the multiplication of oaths, or taking an oath on everything. So it wasn't just good enough to take each other at, the, at your word. You had to make an oath. So it's like, I, I'll do that for you. I swear on my head, I'll do that for you. Now, if it's a little bit bigger deal, then I'll swear on Jerusalem that I do that. And you see he goes through those different things. If it's even a bigger deal than that, you're like, I'll, I'll swear on the entire earth. Or the ultimate, I swear on heaven. And so it became this thing of... There's no sense in which we just always dialogue honestly or we take each other at our word. It's only if we attach an oath to it that we're really tied to our word. And then secondly, then they start finding loopholes in it all. And you see this, how this operates all through the Gospels. They start finding loopholes in that, okay, well, you know, I swore an oath to you on my head, but... I swore an oath to someone else by the earth, so I can kind of fudge on the one I swore by on my head. And they start finding all these loopholes to get out of being honest with one another. So it would be something like, um, you know, I, I ask Adam if I can borrow his car to go to the airport. I say, I, I, I'll fill it up with gas. I promise. I swear on my head. I'll fill it up with gas. I get back, drop it off. It's on E. He wants to know what's up. It's like, well, if I was gone, someone else called me and asked me to come to their house and help them, and I swore on Jerusalem that I would help them. So, sorry, you're out the gas. I'm going over here. And they're finding these loopholes to get out of what they promised to do. So Jesus is kind of giving the whole thing a timeout. Let's step back. He's like, enough with the oaths. And it's not, he's not saying like an oath in itself is completely wrong and sinful. Jesus himself make, makes vows. Paul does as he goes throughout uh, the New Testament. But he's saying that that's, you're missing the point. It's not about attaching, doing it in this name, doing it in this name, doing it somewhere else. The point is be honest. Operate in a way that is honest. Don't be looking for loopholes or ways to get out of what you say. It's not just some sort of outward proof that either I was honest or I was able to get out of it. It's inwardly being a person of your word. And that's what he comes to the end. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be marked as a person who the truth is really flexible with you. Who you can kind of fudge things and you can, you know, you can really create a story And you know, you've been in that place at some point in your life, whether recently or younger, where you kind of got caught in a bad situation. You know how you can see it with a kid where you can actually see them, like, thinking? Like, okay, they're standing here with a candy wrapper that's empty. And it's like, okay, how do I get out of this? We've been in that where it's, you know, we can justify to ourselves just a little bit of dishonesty as we go through this. And Jesus really raises the stakes right at the end. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, first of all, let me say, I know there are ethical questions to lying. Like typically, when you talk about honesty, like the first question is, okay, in the case of war, if you hold the code to the nuclear bomb, someone asks you for it, 
So I'll just go and say, like, whichever you find yourself in that scenario, you know, you got to make a judgment call for yourself. But we'll just be, like, day-to-day life, typically what we're going to face in our yes being yes and our no being no. Jesus paints a fairly black and white picture. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be sneaky, tricky, deceitful people. But then look how he ups the stakes at the end of that, of verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Really, honesty before God is a test of his lordship in your life. It's not up to you to decide whether you can be honest or not. You're from the Father. He is truth. His word is truth. He commands, be honest. Be truthful. Be truthful for the good of your neighbor. Anything else is from the devil. Anything else, you're not submitting to the lordship of God. That's what dishonesty is, is not submitting to the lordship of God. Listen to just some of these verses here. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 18, 37, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Listen to John 8, 44. You are, the father, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus lays it out plainly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is of your father the devil. It's an issue of submission to the lordship of God. You know, I would think through it in ways of being honest where you can easily get seduced. Like, do you change details of stories to gain sympathy? Like, you had a bad day, and now you, you pretty much just lie to make it sound worse, to make sure you get sympathy. Do you lie about your laziness and procrastination to make yourself look better and to make sure you don't get in trouble at work or you just don't look as bad? Is your life one way and you lie about it and create something different on Facebook? It's easy to get seduced because we think, you know, I don't come right out and just give a bold-faced, blatant lie. So, and... Jesus, stop with all of that. This trickiness, this sneakiness, this manipulating, this flexibility with the truth, stop it. That's of the devil. That's a lie. That's deceit. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Go ahead and flip over to Romans chapter 8. This will be our third passage. I hope that at this point, you're looking at the reality of it, and you're not like checking off in your mind, I'm totally honest, I have this one covered. Like this isn't like another rung, you've made it up, you're that much closer to being right with God. There's dishonesty in all of our hearts. 
there is deceit that can creep up into all of our hearts. The law serves to look at it, really look at it, allow it to be that mirror that will expose, wow, I've really been seduced in this area. I don't even feel bad now when I make up a little fib. It's got to be a big old lie before I really feel bad about it. That's just how I operate now. I always add a few minutes on my time card. I always, whatever it might be. The law exposes you for what you are, a sinner. If it was up to you to obey the law, then you stand condemned. But now let the law serve its purpose as that mirror that drives you to the gospel. In Romans 8, we have the testimony of the one completely true and perfect and faithful witness. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And here's what's beautiful. is In the courtroom, his testimony is your defense. He's not your accuser. He is the one perfect one who holds a stone and could cast a stone because you're a sinner and he's not. Yet his defense is mercy. Look at Romans chapter 8. Begin reading verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God stands as our true witness. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. You look at your life. Let the law serve its purpose. But don't just like stay in despondency. Let it drive you to the gospel. To this reality. Jesus Christ came to the earth and he was perfectly honest at every point in his life. Without sin, all the way to the cross. As people lied about him, as people manipulated the truth, as people twisted the truth, all the way that it sent him to the cross. And as he hung there on the cross, every dishonest, deceitful, sneaky action, word that comes out of our mouth, was poured out on Jesus Christ. He absorbed that. To the point that God the Father sees him and turns his head. He forsakes the Son because he can't look upon that deceit and that disgusting lie anymore. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus Christ was perfect. He was without sin. Death couldn't hold him. The accusation couldn't stand. He bore that wrath and then he conquered the grave. What does it say now? That with Jesus Christ, everything that we need is given to us. Jesus Christ now, in the courtroom, pleads on our behalf. He is the faithful and the true witness that we can't be for ourselves. So when you begin, you come into church and you start living in despondency and thinking, you know, I've been such a below average Christian this week. 
you know, I've been dishonest basically every day at some point. Now I'm going to come in here and sing, Worthy, worthy, Jesus is worthy. I'm not worthy to sing that. I can't sing that to him. That's the lie that Satan wants you to believe. He wants to be able to rise up and condemn you. And Jesus says, no. God stands for you. No one's testimony can stand against you. Because Jesus took that on himself. He, that is the faithful, that is the true, completely true witness. And that is our hope. That is the gospel. And that is what the law does, is it drives you to the gospel. So first, let the law have its way. Let it expose that you've been seduced. Let the weight of your sin rest upon you. Don't just skip that step. That's the purpose of the law, to drive you then to the gospel. To look to Jesus Christ, the faithful and the true witness, who's the only one who can stand and say, my son is not guilty. He's not condemned. And then, what's it do? It leads us back to the law, to how we serve our king. Flip to Ephesians 4, that'll be our last passage. We went through Ephesians a few years ago as a church, and Ephesians 1 through 3 lays the groundwork of the beauty of the gospel, what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. Chapter 4 then begins to develop how we are then to live before our God within the community of believers, how that sanctification, how we live as people who have been set free. You get to chapter 4, you come to verse 17. Your title heading, mine says, The New Life. And that's what it's beginning to explain to you is, here's the old man, here's the new man. Here's what the new life is to look like, both individually and in community. Look at verse 23. It says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then from 25 to the end of the chapter, he's going to develop what that looks like. Look how it starts. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Truthfulness, trusting, is absolutely essential for community. Without it, there is no community if there's no trust. Think of how you interact with, and if someone's a car dealer or knows someone is, this isn't meant to be a sweeping generality, but generally, (laughs) you go to buy a car. Aren't you basically just assuming you're getting lied to the whole time? You know, pretty much like, okay, 50% of what this guy's telling me is probably not true. You know, it doesn't really get 62 miles to the gallon. It doesn't really, you know, it's not going to save me money. He's not really losing money on this deal like he keeps telling me he is. And then you have your car. Then you bring it to get it fixed. And aren't you just, like, crossing your fingers like, oh, I hope this mechanic's at least decently honest because they could just make up anything. Like, it's your clapper valve is broken. You know, like, <laughs> fix your car. Here's $1,000. And you're like, oh, whatever. 
if there's not trust, instead of opening yourself up to serve someone else and that order self-sacrifice, instead you're just always protecting yourself. It's all about self-preservation. That person's probably out to get me. That might not be true because they're just looking to serve themselves. And in a community, especially in the church community, there must be trust that you open yourself up to sacrifice for someone else. To demonstrate kindness and love to others. There has to be that level of trust, that level of truthfulness. So as Ephesians here would develop for us, and as we've already seen, it goes beyond just outwardly saying an honest word but being truthful for the good of your neighbor, for the good of your community, instead of being deceptive to promote your own good. So that carries over into slander. You know, purposely destroying someone's reputation. That's not truthful, honest language. Even if you have a piece of dirt on somebody that really happened, Is truthfulness for the good of your neighbor then? Saying, well, I won't talk to them about it, but I'll talk to everybody else about it. Celebrating when someone stumbles because it makes you look good or because you knew that was coming. Or that vague kind of, you know, I hear something being said about someone, but I'm not going to stand up for them. I'll just sort of let the rumor continue and... It goes beyond just the negative part of not saying something untrue, but actually positively speaking truth for the good of your neighbor, for the good of your community. That covers slander. That covers the idea of gossip and rumor. That you're not completely sure about something, but that's all right. I'll just keep the message passing along. You know, yeah, that was private and hurtful, but, you know, I'll still make it my Facebook status. However that grows and continues, that slander, that rumor and gossip, that flattery isn't part of your language. You know, if gossip is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face, then flattery is kind of saying to someone's face what you'd never say behind their back. And if you're using flattery to get your way, that's false testimony that's hurting your neighbor. It goes beyond just, you know, in the moment saying one honest word. It's being marked inwardly as a community of people who speak truth for the good of our neighbor. Resting in and trusting in the true and perfect witness who stands on our behalf who pleads for us. So let the law serve its whole cycle. Let it be that mirror to see, I have been a little seduced in this area. You know, to be completely honest, seems more distant, more, you know, not real to me than just kind of being sneaky with the truth. That's how I operate. Let the mirror of the law show you how you've been seduced. Let it drive you to the gospel to rest in Jesus Christ alone, to praise him that he is a faithful and true witness. And then let it bring you back to the gospel to look, how can I walk 
with a heart that loves God and loves my neighbor? How does the law serve me in that? Be a truthful community for the good of one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your kindness. Lord, I thank you that your word is true. As we open your word, we can be confident that we're not just